Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Hello, everyone. Episode 29 of Hashing It Out. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Colin Couchet. Say hello, Colin. Hello, Colin. Nice. And <laughs> today's guest, we have Alex Van Descent from, he is a UX designer for the Ethereum Foundation. Many of you already know who he is, but we want to talk to him about uh, universal logins and the space in general. So welcome to the show. Why don't you give... Um, our audience a quick quick introduction as to like who you are how you got introduced to the ethereum space and what you work on currently hey hi curry hi colin thanks for letting me be on the show i've been on the space for a while now i've been working with the foundation since 2014 so there was uh before the EU network launched but after the pre-sale uh and i've i i'm pretty sure i was I, I am one of the f- first designers, and I think I was one of the, the one of the first employees in the like people to be employed and salaried in the in the foundation. So I've been here for a while, and I'm I, I, I always been focused on how do how can we make this whole Ethereum thing less complicated and more simple for the end user, even if that means it gets more complicated for for the engineers. Um, that's what I've been doing for for some time there. That sounds definitely like a UX designer to me. <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> yeah, what a, engineers will make it work, whatever. <laughs> the end users will. I actually agree. Like it's it's a tough, taunting task to try and make this, these very complicated systems understandable to people who might not need to know all the gritty details that they currently have to. So my hats off to you. That's a very difficult, difficult task to take on. Oh, also, I am also the sort of a developer. So I, I, I am very skeptical of designers who can't code because not because I, I, not because I think everyone needs to code. Because I think you need to at least understand what's what's happening under the hood. So you are not that guy that just thinks, oh, engineer will solve it, right? I think that's that's a very that's actually a common thing where 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 both both designers and engineers like the the, the engineer will get get it. Oh, we, we'll, you build this thing, and then the designer will just throw a little like coat of UX paint on it, and it will be easy to use. And on the other hand, designers who don't understand like the the, the code under this can be the, the sort of people who I, I'm going to just build a solution and it's like the engineers will magically make it work and I don't care about real world limitations and I think you need to be somehow a bridge between those two worlds. What's difficult about that, that that kind of this this whole space um, is drastically different than how people have grown intuition when using the internet 
which means that as a UX designer, you have to then deliver deliver applications or use cases to them that uh, give them the ease of use and convenience that they're that they're associated with, while also providing security implications of holding your own keys, being responsible for your own information and data, and a kind of abstract way a lot of the difficulties associated with like using blockchain infrastructure right now. It's in my opinion, it's as a, as a UX person, this is the most difficult space to be in, but also might be quite like the most exciting because you're enabling a lot of people really new ways of interacting with other people and taking taking control over their own lives again. But it's it's just incredibly difficult. Have you what's your what's what's been your experience in that? I think I agree with you. I think it's exciting because there's a lot of work to be done, right? And I think in in other areas, it's sort of come in i mean if you, if you come in as the like a web developer now and want to build like a new social network and it's not blockchain related you sort of know all the places where people have been right oh th- that's that's how the flow that's where you start that's the best login scenario that's the best there there there's a ton of research on how do you make the best sign up screen so that the user is sign up easily right and, and i think in, in blockchain, there, in blockchain is sort of the opposite place where everyone is started, starting at the basics, right? Everyone's starting at, okay, let's, let's suppose that every user is a single private key and that's, that's my user. And then you start questioning, oh, wait, wait, what's, what does that mean? What, what, what does signing up mean? What is onboarding mean? And then you have to recreate a lot of those, those steps. And I think, it's an interesting challenge, and, I, and it's and it's fun. I'm very happy that I've, I I am in this space. What's more to that is that you actually like this technology is built on public and private key cryptography, which which has a lot to do with signing on to things or authenticating yourself for access to things. Which means that we can then improve further on previous ways of doing things outside of just a simple username and password, which everyone is is it's very easy to do. There's a lot of conveniences of having a password, but like. Having public and private cryptography baked into the foundational layer allows you to expand on that and make things much, much more secure or even or even easier in some cases. And I think we'll get into that when we get into like universal logins. But like, how, what do you, what, how do you feel about that? I really believe that like what we are doing is sort of going into making a very round way of trying to reinvent a bunch of like we are sort of reinventing a lot of the technology in the web because we we really believe that it can be done much better in a much more secure way, and we want to to like and and I think like by the end that we end up reinventing the wheel, we'll have a system that is more secure than what we have right now, but it can be but it can be as easy or even easier and more user-friendly than what we have right now, right? I, I really believe that we have this opportunity because I really think that the like the things we are doing are not just because, oh, we like we want to blockchain things, so blockchain needs to be more complicated. Oh, let's do private private key because everyone is a criminal and we don't want like the government to spy on us. I really think that like if if you were reinventing the web right now, if you go back to to the nineties, if we go back to the seventies, and like, I would, I, I I would I would bet that actually those were missing pieces back then, right? Those are no, you need you should be using 
public key cryptography since the beginning. You should be training. You should be thinking about how your users are secure. You should be thinking about how do we keep like your data private? How do you avoid leaving our digital trails everywhere? How do we avoid getting our information being just gathered and owned by a single huge company, right? Because I, I think that is the, the right way of, of doing it, of, of building a common infrastructure that in the end, we will have a better web for it. Absolutely. But the problem back then was a lot of these things that we're doing now, uh, they weren't really feasible back then, meaning that <laughs> there was a lot of, first off, there's a lot of innovation that happened between now and then. I mean, could you imagine if we built a, a, you know, a lot of our um, uh, hashing on MD5? Uh, you know, um, <laughs> and to, to that point, I've, if you've ever speaking to any gray hairs, uh, sometimes like I've actually had conver- uh, several times had conversations with uh, some gray hair developers who are still kind of stuck in the computing power of the time and who I said, yeah, I just MD5 all these screenshots just because it was really easy and quick and I didn't really need to share it anywhere. And they're like, MD5. I'm like, yeah. And I go, I know it's insecure. They go, no, it's just too expensive. It costs so much computing power to do an MD5. I'm like, dude, it's like 2015. <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's, not, it's not the same thing. We can't. So like a lot of these these cryptography techniques used to be a little more expensive than they even are, are now. Uh, are the, well, they're the same cost, but computing power has gone up. Our resources are more available. We're able to do new things. And to that point, like, I, I, I feel like to get back on the UX train, because I really want to make this comment, has anybody seen, you guys watch Silicon Valley at all? Because there's this, there's this episode where the Pied Piper develops their app and they release uh, it to the it, world. Uh, and they the, only... The, 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 the UX, the user testing that they do? Uh, yeah. I know, yeah. So they only shared it with other developers. And other developers are like, wow, this is amazing. And so they've got positive feedback from a very uh, narrow focus group. And when they release it to the wild, to the rest of the world, they, nobody could freaking understand it. The only one who could understand it were developers. And I feel like that's exactly the problem we're facing oh, right boy. now. And the barrier I, to adoption boy. is the user understanding what it's adopting and why. And that is definitely a user experience problem. So you have one of the more interesting areas in the space, in my opinion. I totally agree. I have, I, I remember watching that episode as it aired and I was identifying so much of it. I was like, this is, this is my work because there's, there's a specific thing that I, I found very, very telling both of Silicon Valley and our industry where like they released this product, as you, as you said, and they, they were running like a user testing and the users during the usability group, they, they, they're not getting it. And then the main developer just jumps into the room. And then they, they, he starts giving a, a one-hour lecture on on the basis of everything. And by the end of it, after like two hours talking to developers, everyone is excited about it. And I, I, I connect very deeply with that sensation because I, I have been there. I've been in situations where I, I get into a room where people have no idea what I'm about to talk about. And then I, I need to give like a 40 minutes lecture on why blockchain exists, why it's fun, why it's cool. And then in the end, I ended up with a five minute demo of a very complicated app. And then everyone was, was excited, right? And I think that's exactly the moment we are on where we are, like where we are very excited about it, but it's such 
uh, an out of like out there experience that nobody else gets it. Yeah, and, and I feel like the real challenge isn't going to be that. See, the top twenty percent are probably going to drive the adoption for the last eighty percent, but we're only even reaching out to the top one percent right now. And if we could communicate that top twenty percent within five minutes, then the top eighty percent will probably uh, the lower eighty percent will probably accept whatever experience you give them as being the best because they listen to the the, the 20% who drive innovation, uh, the early adopters, whatever you want to call them. But the problem is even those, that 20% capture isn't there yet. And, and we're, it, it's struggling. It's difficult for me because I talk to other engineers who aren't in blockchain and they just kind of like roll their eyes. And I still feel like I'm fighting this like cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, you know, lovey-dovey kind of like, Oh, well, not lovey-dovey, but this libertarian <laughs> sort of like, like, oh, the free market rule, everything will, will destroy the banks and all this kind of stuff. And they don't understand that there's a whole other innovation here that we are leveraging with blockchain um, through smart contracts um, and through decentralized storage mechanisms, such as IPFS or storage or what have you, um, that will enable a new way of building things, a new paradigm and they don't understand the advantage to that. So they look at things and they go, well, why am I going to give up my mainframe system when, you know, the response time on Ethereum is 14 seconds per block with a limit on how, many, how much gas can be consumed? I can't get the transactional throughput that I need. There's only 500K th- transactions I could get through per, per day. Uh, so per day? Yeah, per day. So it's like, that's, that's not enough. But I'm like, okay, hold on. There's a whole other, like, there's, there's, a, there's an innovation side of things here. You need to dump money into researching this stuff. And the problem is typically a presentation issue. So I'm really excited for your work. And I hope that you can condense uh, even those five minutes into less than 10 seconds so that people can just instantly get it. Well, I have, a, I have another part of that that's, that's maybe we're too early for this type of thing. Like, is the tech ready for us to be focusing so much time and effort into uh, designing for the end user when, when like, I think realistically speaking, what the end user when we have massive adoption is going to be interfacing with something that's layers on top of what we have now. And the UX design is like, what, who is, who is it actually for? Should it be for an end user or should it be for developers who are building the layers on top of the, like the infrastructure we're building now? Okay. I want to go back to something Colin says, because I want to answer that question as a great question, but I, let's go back to the something Colin said before, Harry. And I think like, when 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 I'm trying to convey to other people why we need that, where I uh, I'm trying to avoid this whole oh it's libertarian free market thing and trying to give something universal, I love the example of Facebook because Facebook has last last over a billion active users and I think at some point they were nearing two billion active users and I mean two billion people if you if you get every social security number that you have in the US, if you add it to every, the equivalent of the social security number in Brazil and probably in the whole of South America, you and then you add every single identity system, digital identity system in the European Union, you will not get to 2 billion people, right? That's how many users Facebook has information right now. And it's not only that for a lot of people, especially like in, in developing countries, Facebook is the, the internet, right? Facebook is the entrance for the internet. For a lot of those people, 
that there is also there is also the way they have access to a, all the freedom that the internet gives us, right? Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of commerce, freedom of just being able to talk about politics or sell stuff with other people. I'm just talking about like your, your little guy who sets up an Instagram shop. Every one of those people have their whole identity and digital life tied to a single company. And that single company is majorly controlled by one single person. And it's crazy that like we have th this one person that if they so decide can just turn the key and decide, you know what? I think all of those, this whole category of actions that people are doing, it's, I mean, I don't want them in my platform, right? And that's, that's obviously now how, how we can move together forward with the internet. If you want the internet to be this global phenomenon where everyone has access and freedom and access to information, et cetera, we can now, it, it cannot work if it's just controlled by like one single Mark Zuckerberg. And so I and think I you think should get back to Corey's question, but this, this kind of brings something up that, that really, to me, is something we have to communicate is that we've been designing systems wrongly for identity. Meaning that we haven't been building our privacy with the idea that somebody could violate a central user's or uh, or even as a central user violate its end user's trust. And so since we've been designing systems with this trusted element of, of centralization and like, yeah, we give our information to Facebook, Facebook's got it. We give our information to Equifax, Equifax will never get breached, that's crazy. And then they wind up getting breached or they wind up getting manipulated in some way or they wind up selling their data, selling data to people that we don't feel are using that data in a are using that data to sway pol political elections. And so we're not building our infrastructure of identity and information related to a person's independent identity in a way that will facilitate long term, uh, you know, benefits to society and eventually everything will get hacked. So if we build things in a hack proof way, I don't want to call it hack proof, but with the idea that you're putting your information out there and you are responsible for protecting your information, then the attack vector is you and then you must be accountable. So I feel like this whole narrative of like centralization versus decentralization is very difficult to explain. I love the fact that you use Facebook because I actually use that regularly myself. But uh, it's all about how we're architecting things. And people don't understand that there's another way. And that's what I feel like I'm trying to fight is that there's another way, guys. There's another way to do this. And they kind of still see it as fantasy or nobody will put all their information on the blockchain. It's public. I'm like, there's another way to do it. So it's private. Like, you, I don't know. It just feels to me like people don't accept that there is another way yet. And communicating that is still difficult. Yeah, but and even even if you start with the assumption that look, it's uh, people will never take care of their own private keys. People are are not capable of that. But we can start with the assumption of let's not trust the central party for that, right? There is that there are intermediary steps in between. Every all information is on Mark Zuckerberg's personal computer. To everyone is an expert in cryptography, and they they manage it. And I think. The interesting thing is that we sort of Facebook starts at their end and then they are like, 
oh no, but we are doing it in, in more secure way. We are adding more barriers to make sure that your data is safe. And we are starting in the other, in the other end where everyone is responsible for their own private data. And then we are trying to make it a, a little, little bit more easier, a little bit more accessible, a little bit more universal and adding schemes where, oh, you're, you're trusting this party, but here's, here are the vectors of the trust. You trust them to do this, but not that. That's the limit on their trust. You can remove that trust at any point. And we are at every step of the way, we are, we are, we are trying to go slowly and we are, we are sort of going the same direction. But I think, but I think order in our way will get there eventually. I, I think it's possible for us to start with the blockchain this crypto crazy world and get to a place where it's universally accessible. I think that's more believable than believe that Facebook will just become super safe, super secure, and we will be always be able to trust Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I feel like back kind of circling back to my question, that is the reason for UX design at this stage is basically making uh key management uh, something that's that's a reasonable thing to do for the end user because if we start where at, at, the, at the layer where everyone needs to secure their own things uh, and because people aren't ever going to all become cryptography experts there may be a general gain in understanding and knowledge over, across the board but uh, th it's not feasible to believe everyone's going to become an expert and have full understanding so the UX design the the types of things of interfacing with private keys and the space layer infrastructure is important because it allows people then or allows us to come up with solutions that work in a secure manner for the everyday user. So as we keep building things, it's easy, it's easy to onboard them. Is that, I mean, I feel like that's, that's why UX design at this stage is important. Is there anything else that I may have missed or is that completely off base? Yes. I, I think that, Here's the thing, right? We 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 also are always thinking about like the, the average. The I believe that there is this myth of the average user, right? Believe, people believe that there is this average user elsewhere that is perfectly encapsulated by your grandmother, and whenever we reach your grandmother, we've reached everyone. And I don't think it's that, and I don't think that's the right way to of doing it, because I think. UX design is important since the beginning. I think it's important on every step of the way. It's just we are slowly expanding who the users are. At some point, I like one of my one of the first things I did and when Ethereum was launched, I was helping do the do the website. And just to install and run Ethereum and run run a node, you you had to run you had to install like a, it was very complicated. You had to open the command line and type five, ten, ten lines of code. And I push them and I help them to reduce that to one or two lines of installation. That is UX design, right? Reducing 10, 10, 10, 10 lines in the common line to two, that's sort of UX design because there are users, I mean, not everyone is an equal developer. There are people who can open the command line and copy paste stuff but not necessarily can can paste 10 things and debug every step of the way, right? So we can start with, look, there's like this huge developer and there's that, that guy who's just starting, is curious, wants to open. He, he's able to open the, open the terminal. Okay, we're, we're, we are done with this guy. We've solved that problem. Now, can we go to the next step where someone is 
tech savvy enough to be able to download a software and sync up their chain and and test something and they want to be able to get their pre-sale wallet off their like off their USB drive and save a backup elsewhere and then get to an exchange without using the command line. Can we do that? Can we solve that? Yeah, we can solve that. And I, I, I was working on that. And then we, you go over like to the to, to next level. Oh, is that the kind of user that would install Firefox? That's the kind of user that would install a Chrome extension. And then I think at some point we need to get to the kind of user that doesn't want to install anything, that doesn't want to download anything or is not, is not, is not technical capable of that. And I think you cannot expect to jump directly to that guy if you haven't solved all the issues with and if you have haven't solved and learned from all those other more advanced users whose UX design matters, right? I don't think UX design is just making it shiny and pretty for for your grandmother. It's also making it sometimes just making it so that someone who wants to learn more about Ethereum can follow a, a, an easy to like a an easy to follow tutorial that's part of ux design so to relate a story that actually might like help condense that down a bit i I don't know that's a really good point is back in 1999 like 2002 2003 something like that i worked at a a particle accelerator facility in newport news and virginia and um this was like my first job as a web development intern um and a lot of the scientists there refused to do just the most basic things. It was strange. They didn't put, they didn't enable cookies. So every time I tried to do certain types of redirects, it would fail the application for them. It, some of them uh, insisted on using links as a browser, which I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a uh, command line browser. So it had absolutely no graphical capability whatsoever. And so my target audience for those, for, for, for any application I built there was a moving target. So if I was building it for the science community, I had to make it as basic as possible. These guys wanted literally nothing, bare bones, just get it out there, get it working, simple forms, as as basic as humanly possible. But if I was building it for the HR staff, then it's a totally different target audience. And so I think what we're trying to identify here is how can we move that target audience, put that target audience for these decentralized applications into the hands of people who want to use them now and not worry about the people who won't want to use them right now, but still broaden that gradually until we get a good paradigm going for anybody who wants to adopt it. And that, that will take years, but I think it's, um, I think it's uh, an interesting problem. So, you know, kudos to you. Uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, um, I think is, is key to a lot of this is I've, I built a decentralized application last year for a customer and um, one of the pain in the ass things to deal with was that they didn't have, there was no good way to do logins. So I basically had to hard code or store some methodology, some method of, of keeping a local copy of, um, of accounts. And those accounts would have to have their wallets in a folder on the decentralized application locally. Um, and, it, and it, yeah, the UI was good for selecting those accounts, but adding and removing those was kind of a pain in the butt and people didn't understand it. And it was very much a barrier. So I wonder if you could talk a little more about how you're solving that problem with universal logins and um, talk about the EIPs behind it. Okay. So back, uh, 
And to go on, on, on to the building uh, in your story, and I think it's super important to, to think, because we talk about this average user and the top, like the early adopters, as if it's everyone is on a line and everyone is, is from like, I'm very smart to I'm very dumb, right? And I think that's not the way to approach it because there are people, and I'm pretty sure you met them, like there are people who are, are like high, high particle physicists who can who work in the particle accelerator, but will not be able to are not able to set up their own email account. We're not able to set up their own email account in the 90s, right? And everyone is sort of like that, right? You might be a, a cryptography expert. That doesn't mean that you understand other areas. And even someone who who has like real problems, right? Someone who's working, maybe someone is 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 very good at working on on their field, right? They have they have far more problems. They have to worry about either the if their pigs are gonna die or not. They don't really want to have to deal with all those things. And and we we just want to be able to get them a way for them to be able to sell their farm products out there. It doesn't mean that they're dumb. They probably have a lot more knowledge that we have no idea on. It's just that they don't have the bandwidth to learn all those new stuff. We just want to we just want to simplify it. And then so going back to universal logins, one of the things that I, I I've spent the last years since I, I I've done a lot of things in the Ethereum Foundation, but my main project uh on and off was like during all those the, those years was Mist, which is a browser, which is like a, a wallet. It's, if you go to Ethereum.org, that's like the main link that there is. You download the wallet. There is also a browser behind it. And, and we, we have always been trying to do how we can make the simplest, simplest thing possible. But there's, there, is a, there is a barrier there, which is the first thing that you need to do is download something, right? You need to download our browser. You need to download MetaMax extension, maybe. Maybe you need to download a, an iPhone app. You need to download something. And most people do not want to download anything. They just want to go to a website and sign up. And I really wanted to think about how can we, in a way, uh, figure out a solution that where the onboarding is very easy, is very simple, and the user doesn't need to down, nor download anything. It doesn't need to write down a seed phrase, or they don't need to buy Ether, which is also like a huge problem, right? I'm pretty sure that if you work on a decentralized app, some of your clients probably ask you, why, why do I need to buy this stuff, right? I, I don't want to have to buy this new crypto, cryptocurrency thing to, to build your, my decentralized app. Well, in my current case, I it, I, I tend to use private Ethereum networks, but yeah, that would be def- that's pretty much why I use private Ethereum networks is because they just want to prove to people that this is worth investing in. Uh, so um, it's not going on the main net. Um, if it were, they would have to buy a bunch of ETH, which is a floating target of cost um, compared to the fiat world, which still dominates our pricing structure. Um so yeah, no, I definitely would like a way to not have to pay or have they have them even aware of you know what's in their wallet. Yeah, also another problem is that like most most people have multiple multiple devices, right? So they have their iPhone, they have their iPhone, they have their laptop, they have a, a desktop. 
Um, even how do you transfer your your account from one to the other is a complicated thing because we we don't want people typing private keys, taking private keys from one place and take it to, take it to the other, and and also the whole management of private keys has this thing I call the crypto paradox, right? Because we are telling people this private key is super important and you need to have a backup, right? You need to have a backup. So if you lose it, you lose all your money. But if you do too many backups and you forget it and you put it in your Gmail account and your Gmail is hacked, if you put it on iCloud, if you put it on, on too many USB sticks, it can leak and then your money is also, also lost. So we have this crazy thing where you need to make just the right amount of copies, right? You make too many of, of them, it's leaked, you, lo you, you, lo you lose all your money. You make too few of them, you have a, a, some problem with your device, you lose all your money. And the solution that I'm, I'm pushing to, other, to others is, is quite, it's actually, it's nothing new, it's something that's been around for a while, but I'm just trying to standardize it is the idea that instead of keeping your funds in, in private keys, you keep them on some sort of pro proxy contract, which is basically a multi contract that uh, uh, allows you to... Just, uh, just a, it's a proxy contract that has code behind it. And the idea is that on every device you own, every device that you're using, you keep a different private key. You don't back them those private key up. You keep the private key as buried as you can in each device, as safe as you can in each device, and then use those private keys not to keep an ether, but just to sign message. And then you send that message to the proxy contract. And the proxy contract has the capability of understanding, oh, this is a signed message asking me to do X, Y, or Z. And that's, that's what I, uh, and, and it's able to do it. We, we're calling those, those sign message uh, meta transactions, which is basically a transaction that is a, it's almost a second layer of a signed transaction, right? You're, you're just, you're not signing a transaction, you're signing a message telling a contract to do a transaction in your behalf. It's just authentication at that's very, that's very basic level. It is very, it's very similar to having a, an authorization token. It's very similar to having every device has an authorization token and you're just giving out authorization tokens, which is good because it means that if you lose one of your devices, you didn't lose all your money. You just lo lost one authorization token. And as long as you have the capability of generating more, more authentication tokens, you can create more of them. And there's another, another cool thing of that is that the, someone needs to actually deploy those transactions on chain, right? But that doesn't mean that it needs to be you. What you can do is you take those, those meta transactions, you give it to anyone literally that has Ether, and they can be the one uh, paying that cost for you. And because we are talking about a smart contract, one thing that you can do is you can sort of refund that person with some other tokens. And which comes back to your, your issue where like a lot of business, they don't, they don't mind having costs associated with what they're doing. They don't want to buy Ether because they have no idea how much Ether will be costing. And this, this, this whole architecture would allow you to actually run a whole app just using, just using DAI. Because what you can do is that you can keep DAI on your, let's say DAI or any other token really in your account. And then you're 
sign messages and paying those messages with some other token, which is not Ether. So uh, how does this get around the whole need to back up a ton of keys problem? So let's say I have a, a authorized account on my um, on my cell phone. I have an authorized account on my laptop. I have an authorized account on my desktop and I have an authorized account on my tablet. Um, okay, that's cool. And let's just assume they're different accounts, I think. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yes. But um, I lose my cell phone. What do I do? So the idea here is that so there are multiple ways in which you can in which you can set it up, right? So one of the things you can do is if you have already five devices, you could have you can have uh, you can have a requirement to have at least two or three devices be able to sign in order to add an uh, add a new device. So if you lose your cell phone, but you still have access to your iPad and your desktop, let's say you can still use both of those to to add a new. Uh, add a new device to it, to add your your new phone. And another thing you can do is you can still do backups, but you can do a, a backup of keys that were never lying. So the idea is instead of trying to back up the, the, every key in every device, what you do instead, you generate brand new keys, you print them or you like put them somewhere very safe that is never online, Print it, laminate it, keep it in your mother's house, in your bank, whatever. And then you can use that as a last last resource recovery. So if you lose all your devices in a in a fire, you can still have access to those if you can still have access to those recovery codes, it's you you can recover your account. The added advantage is that because those recovery codes were never online in the first place, they were just generated offline, you were sort of Tricking user, you you you're tricking users into doing like the bad, the more, most secure way because what what I'm doing is that we can create a very easy flow for the user that in the end they created the modisig they created the paper backup uh, uh, like, which is a code storage and they didn't need to realize any of those words or even know what they what they mean right they didn't know that they were creating modisig they didn't know what a code storage is. But still, you're sort of tricking users into it. So one interesting thing that this kind of spawns in my head is that since we're assuming a world with multiple devices for this, because, uh, you know, a single device, this doesn't really seem to carry as much weight. But if you have multiple devices, this does seem to carry some weight, um, at least to me at this point. Maybe maybe you have a different argument for that. I agree. Um, I am assuming that we we are moving to a world, not only of multiple devices per, per, per user, per, per person, mm-hmm. but that most devices are single users, right? You, right. We, we don't have the idea where we have a shared computer where multiple people log in and log out anymore. So the, the, the idea that pops in my head is, okay, let's assume a minimum number of devices of, say, four. Um, maybe that's not reasonable, but I think you could share, this, hear what I'm saying, and maybe you could even share with friends or something like that to make this happen. Um, we could use shared keys to sort of encrypt and then send out uh, the recovery codes so that you don't actually have to have a physical copy of the recovery code. You can just retrieve it through some sort of uh, key sharing mechanism, which will enable you to um, decrypt the actual recovery code um, at will. Uh, And this way you don't have to actually physically ever print out anything. 
as long as you have a minimal number of devices which have a key share for your recovery code, you can recover that recovery code. Well, there's a there's a Ooh. lot of there's a, there's a whole slew of uh, protocols and procedures you could use for doing uh, authentication across multiple devices or backups for that matter. But the key the key idea here is that you're having a proxy contract that actually holds things, and it's it's almost a permissions layer for interacting with anything on the blockchain that is it only does things through various devices that have been authenticated, which is which is nice because you can do permissions around various devices which have different security profiles. Like my cell phone isn't as secure as my ledger. Things like that. Or, you know what I mean? And so and, and that's and that's reasonable for people because different accounts have different amounts of money in them, which have different amounts of risk, which have different amounts of security. And so there should be different permissions around the I guess attestations those private keys can make. Also, because we are always thinking as like the, the base unit is a, is a private key, we are always trying to think in, in terms of crypto primitives, right? So if you start saying about like, oh, we can do a Shamir secret sharing way of sharing the keys, so you don't need to actually print the keys, you can send them around. That's, that's nice, and you can do that. But more importantly, is, is that all the logic is actually in a contract. So you don't need to, like, you can actually build much more complex recovery mechanisms where you don't need to, to, to resort to those crypto primitives. You can still use a key sharing method, but another thing you could do in theory was, is, and I think, uh, I believe some, 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 some apps are actually developing it like status and, and things like that is you can set up a trusted friend scheme where you say, look, I trust that person, that person, that person, that person. And and if those those person those those three people can come together and, and agree, they can recover my device. With the the difference between that and just doing a secret sharing with them is that at any point because if it's a because it's it's just smart contract logic, at any point you could in theory add more trusted friends or remove them, or even add things like saying, look, uh, I am this is my account. This is my family members, and my family members are only allowed to try to recover access to my account if my main, all my main keys do not make any transaction in a, in like a full year, right? That's a more complex logic that you cannot do with crypto primitives, but you can do with smart contracts, and it sort of makes sense in a in in our day to day world because oh yeah, that's sort of how inheritance works, right? If I die and if I don't touch my keys for a whole year, then like my my those family members that I've picked, they are able to come together and and sort of have access to my to my accounts. And I think it's important. So it's important to remember that we are talking about contract logic that can be upgraded, that can be created anew, that can that can be that that anything that you want to to sort of. Any, any recovery scheme that you can, you can just create on top of it. Well, I, I love that. I, I worry about the security of smart contracts and when people start implementing arbitrary code as the permissions layer for dealing with things on, dealing with their funds and blockchain, that those contracts could be, uh, have, have severe security vulnerabilities inside of them. And like, it, it, we're still not sure of all of the security guarantees of the contract language itself or the EVM and so on and so forth. And that's, that's a moving target as well. So like, 
this is the right way to handle, in my opinion, the right way to handle um, having custodian of, of, of funds and this type of technology. But it's also, it's still very risky because you don't have strong guarantees around the contracts themselves. Well, this brings up something that I... Raise your hand. There's only three of us here. But tell, tell me if you've used any functionality in a smart contract which required Turing completeness. Not Anybody? Right. I, I know I haven't. I've, I mean, I've done it for experiments, but it wound up being too costly. So it's not even worth it. I mean, uh, do we really need recursion capabilities? Do we need, really need infinite loops? Um, we don't do we know really yet. Need... I, don't, I think it's it's too early to say whether or not we need it because I, a lot of the use cases that are If you need a Turing complete version, I feel like that's that's another problem. Like that's that's something else you can totally do either in other ways or with an, another EVM that's more risky and there's a risk associated with it. But to me right now, it seems like just a simple language like PACT, which isn't Turing complete and formally verifiable, would probably benefit the the system as it stands right now. Um, so here's the thing we are, we are sort of like the, in both of your questions, you're sort of questioning why do we have smart contracts at all, right? Or can we trust smart contracts at all to, to do the things that they, they are, they, they want to do? And I, I know, I see where you're coming from, but I, I have to disagree. I think that we, we want to be able, and I'm not talking about do we need to incomplete complete or not. But my point is we do need rich, I do really think that a rich environment where you can create more complex logic is good, is interesting, and is allow us to create a lot more things that we couldn't do before. Right? This whole on this whole universal login scheme that I, I described, it's very hard to do if you don't have a very a sophisticated smart contract logic that allows you to do to, to do things. And I'm not saying that every single user will write up their own smart contract, right? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we can create a system that allows expandability. We can create a system that says, look, this is the basic system that allows where the user has control of their funds and they can create, and, and there, there are a couple of extensible functions where they can say, look, I want to have, I want to create a key that I'm giving it to, let's say, I'm, 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 I, I'm taking this key, I'm giving uh, to a, a subscription magazine that I want, and I'm authorizing that key to do, to take as X amount of money per half. I'm using that other key. I'm giving that key authorization. Just play with CryptoKitties, right? That key can 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 sell my CryptoKitties, can can breed my CryptoKitties. The only thing it cannot do is it cannot buy because it would require an extra key to confirm. And you can create those extra that extra logic. And of course, every time you add that extra logic, you need to be careful that you you're not you're not introducing new bugs, but I think we can create a base, a, a, a base system that is a lot more complex than what we have right now with just base cryptographic primitives, but it still is simple enough that we can audit it, we can, we can make formal proofs around it to make sure that it's safe. This, this, make, this reminds me of a, a couple conversations I had at DEF CON with uh, Grid Plus and their last one. 
uh, like basically hardware device. Have you did you did you talk with them or see them? Because a lot of what their functionality no. is based on the lattice one is what you which, what you're implementing at universal logins. And I feel as though this is becoming um, kind of uh, pushed to the forward, pushed to the front of things people which, need to be worried about. Which company some, is that again? Uh, Grid Plus. It's a consensus spoke called Grid Plus, which is doing the energy. Um, and their lattice one is a hardware device that is doing permissions around key management. And, and, and I, I mentioned this because as multiple companies and people work on these types of problems, they need to come together to come up with standards so they can be used across all of these different implementations. Yeah, that's, that is sort of, so the way I started doing this whole universal again thing was mostly because I started seeing. I started seeing all those solutions emerging in places, and I was just doing my thing where I tour, I go to people, and I help them with different projects. And I, I, a lot of people had basically the same the same issues. Oh, I, I I want to do this, but I don't want to have Ether, and I want to do this, but I want to have multiple users. And I would say, look, you you can do a there there are solutions for this. You can do the sign message. You can do a EC recover, and I, I just sign a message, and you can pay. You can create your token and you can pay fees on your token with the other token. All you need is a layer. And then they would ask me, oh, wait, how, how do I do that? Oh, look, Status has a great uh, EC recover thing. That other token there, they have a, a, a EC, they, they have a way which pay fees with the token itself. That other guy is doing an identity proxy that allows you to expand and have multiple keys. Um, and I would receive blank stares because they were they were like, Dude, I, I just learned how to make a ERC twenty token like thirty <laughs> minutes ago, right? I you you yeah. cannot tell me that I need to like learn how to make a decentralized relayer network. And then I decided, look, there are a lot of very good solutions that people are working and they are not compatible. So I really want to create standards for that. And that's how how I end up writing two ERCs about it. Well, standards are quite powerful. I mean, I think I, in my in my personal opinion, the ERC twenty standard was the catalyst for the entire like crypto cryptocurrency boom because it lowered the barrier of entry and allowed people to build infrastructure around trading these types of things because they all agreed on the how to do it. And whenever... you get a shitcoin, you get a shitcoin, you get a shitcoin, <laughs> everybody gets a shitcoin. And while and while it has potentially like negative consequences, it did a lot for the entire space in terms of bringing attention massive innovation in terms of how we do things and built a lot of infrastructure and it's all around in my opinion a single standard and th- those yeah, are powerful I mean, that's that's not at all accidental right that is sort of like the, the purpose of ethereum in the beginning was like a lot of people were we forget that people were already building shit coins before ethereum came, came came around right but the idea is that before in order for you to 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 say launch dogecoin what you needed to do is you needed to fork like Bitcoin Core, and then you needed to have your own mining infrastructure, and you ha- you needed to convince miners, you needed to convince yep. exchanges, and you I remember to those days, convince a bunch of people, right? So you and, and you, oh, I want to create a new coin for everyone in in Finland, well, Greenland, right? Did like Sia Coin was a, an airdrop for everyone in, in like Finland or, yeah. or or Greenland or something like that. And then it was hard because you needed to to have your own your own wallet, your own mining software, your own mining thing, and then the, and then you need to solve like P two P connections. And 
when Ethereum comes and just tells you, look, we are going to deal with the whole infrastructure and you just build this new thing on top. I mean, you, all you want is just to build a token. The nice part of it is that, like, once you have a token, that you can use any Ethereum wallet that supports token. You can use any Ethereum exchange that supports tokens. And then the infrastructure is already there. Right, so exactly what you 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 said, but that 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 is sort of like the purpose of Ethereum was to build that was to build how can we 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 allow people to to share the infrastructure they are building so that you can only need to focus on what we can do that is novel and interesting. So let's assume, let's let's go the happy path. You're a UX designer. You you UX design and maybe even just like just socially design. So that people start using universal logins and proxy contracts the way that you ex- you, you hope and expect them to in ERC seven twenty five identity. Let's assume we go down the happy path. What do you think the consequences of that be? What will be your shitcoin? <laughs> you mean, you, okay, so the question you're making is, what do I think is the is is the like if everything I'm saying gets popular and gets adopted, what sort of bad outcomes I expect? Is is that what you're asking? Yeah, because I think everybody kind of could have predicted shitcoins. And like, I feel like in this, I kind of have an idea where this would go, but I don't know yet. And I'm kind of, I, I just want to see if you have any predictions with regard to that. Do you have any thoughts? So the whole idea is that I want to make onboarding very, very, very easy, right? Uh, uh, the demo that I give to people is that you can like, you, you, you log into the website and all you need to do is, is type uh, the username you have um, in the, the next screen, you will receive a few tokens. And then the next screen, you're already like clicking a button that allows you to interact with a smart contract and uses that token that you just received for that. So it means that in, in like 30 seconds and, and, and three, in two clicks, basically, you are already interacting with a smart contract. So my idea is I really want to make smart contracts easy. And I would say that if if I succeed on that, probably the first thing that would happen is we will probably multiply a lot of bad Kill behavior that we see. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I thought you were going to say something else. I, I wouldn't say scalability. That might be a problem. I think that's parallel. We can go into that. But I think we'll probably things like like a lot of people like using pyramids, uh, pyramids, and and other like trading things and. And, and probably, uh, like, what actually, what would be the, the, the lower barrier to entry would be probably a wallet where everyone can create their own wallet, everyone can create their own uh, prediction market, everyone can create their own uh, decentralized exchange. And probably we're going to see a lot of like bad Ethereum games and bad Ethereum products and things that are a little, a little bit like CryptoKitty. I think. CryptoKitty generated a whole new generation of of games, which is nothing but just buy and sell stupid stuff, right? I can see it making it CryptoKitty even more popular, like crypto crypto Uh, collectible assets or even more popular. You're lowering the barrier entry to people get to get these things and trade them. And in the process of doing that, you kind of like create an irrational exuberance around them because people can do it. Exactly. Which then leads to a scaling issue because CryptoKitties broke the network at the time when, when they were big. 
because we end up like yes. what if what if the, the blockchain network basically becomes clogged with everyone trying to use these things that basically have no real utility at least for now uh, and then it, 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 it kind of buttons out into use cases that uh, have good utility but only operate under under low gas fees and that's Look, that's a problem that that's going to be solved be eventually that could only be good for bitcoin <laughs> no honestly though if that kind of thing happens the price goes up so the market is supposed to balance itself out and that's cool and all but we still want to use the stuff so i feel like things like layer two solutions and more things like infura are going to be useful uh, until we get some better scaling solutions on the layer one side well yeah because, then i feel like layer two is going to be essential you could you can use this technology with layer two technologies this, this doesn't these aren't you know excluding each other yeah. that's kind of the nice part about it also, I think that is a sort of good problem to have because I would say, and here, here's the truth, there are a lot more people working on scalability than people working on UX design and onboarding. And I think those are equally important because there's no point. I mean, the whole point of, I, I, I think the, the alternative is much worse because if you fix scalability before we fix onboarding, we'll have a network that can handle billions of transactions but doesn't have uh, 100,000 users, right? And I think that's, that's even worse. What, what's the point of having scalability if you can't reach a million users, a billion users maybe? And I would say that like the opposite, where we, we solve onboarding before we solve scalability, I don't think that's going to happen because there are already solutions to that problem right now, right? You, you can do side chains. You can do... You can do uh, you, you can do, and one of the things that are interesting about the, the universal login solution is that you can actually have the same address for your proxy identity in multiple Ethereum networks. So you can have, you can you can use the same address in Rinkerby, in in mainnet, in your side chain, in your proof of authority sub chain, things like that, and you can sort of use the same identity and the same login in all of them. And that's really useful for things like plasma chains. Um, and yeah, exactly. and actually, sure. what's even even cooler is that if we can nail this down, really, you can create a general state channel to another contract on another chain network entirely and do asset transfer that way pretty simply and only have one system which maintains the sort of like, yeah, that could be cool for an atomic swap site the type system that's just easily managed because right now it's kind of a pain in the butt in my opinion but um i don't know i'm kind of thinking about that 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 is a good property of this for sure well uh we're hitting about an hour now uh are there any questions that we should have asked you we hope you hoped we asked you that we didn't get around <laughs> saying no i think i i, I think we had a, a nice conversation and and no, I, I don't know there's any particular question that people you I, I think we hit all the usual questions where where that goes. Well then the obvious next part is what's the next steps? What do you what do you hope happens now that you because you've been going around, we saw you at the status hackathon, you're at DEF CON, you've been going around trying to teach people about universal logins now that you have like kind of this minimum viable product of people to implement them. How do we get it into people's hands? What do people need to do in order to start pushing this forward and making it a real thing? So one important thing to understand is that some, some people don't, don't get it clear when, when I speak it on the first time is that universal again is not 
one solution. It's not like one way of doing it. It's not one app that you download where everything goes through that app, right? And, and, and there are other solutions that do that, but it's not that. It's really just a common architecture that I hope a lot, I'm hoping a lot of people are adopted. And I've, yeah, and I've been doing that this, this whole tour where I, I, I went to Crypto Life, I went to, to DEF CON, I, I went to the Decentralized Finance Summit, I went to, uh, and, and I'm doing a lot of, a, a lot of that. And my hope is that I, I really want to have some, some players in the team ecosystem use that and adopt it. And I think that's going on, that's going on because I've, I've been talking with a lot of, of people in, in different companies, some people with like status or nozzes or smaller companies. And they're all very excited about this idea of having a common standard where everyone can, can, can share. And, and one of the things that they like is the, this idea where you go in, into status and then during the onboarding process, status gives you a status username. And then the next thing that happens is that you go to Nozis, let's say, and you can use your status username in Nozis. So it's almost if you were onboarded once in any app, you can, you're already onboarded on every Ethereum app. And I think that's something that excites a lot of people because it really helps. Uh, it multiplies the onboarding effect. So, so my... my Sure. So that actually, I know that we're coming to the end here and I shouldn't probably be asking more questions, but just kind of triggered something else in me that I've dealt with a long time ago. And I brought up on the show several times that back in 2005, I tried to develop something called um, onlinekarma.net. Didn't pan out, wrong timing, right idea, I, I feel, where you know your reputation kind of went with you from site to site to site. And so you didn't have to fragment between like your eBay rating and your Amazon rating and your, you know, uh, web forum XYZ rating. Um, and they all kind of kind of would build a centralized way of managing that. Um, what do you feel about reputation tied to your login? Do you feel like those things are something and in, in tracking where your login's been used in the history of your login? Like how does that integrate into your vision for this? There are two things there, right? I think the, the first one is the nice thing, uh, which is, I think you should all, and I think it's obvious for, for anyone who's probably listening to this podcast agrees in which you should own your own data, right? Like your Uber rating should, should not be your, it should be your rating. It should be your reputation as a driver should not belong to Uber, should not be your Uber rating because it creates, the, and I think you're right. Like you, if you have a good reputation as a, as a, as a, as a driver, you should be able to go to another driving network and, and use your reputation there. Or your insurance and, company. Or an insurance company, or just remove, remove lock-in from, from Uber, right? Why, why do you have to start a new if you want to create, go to an Uber competitor? I think that's, that's, that's a wrong, wrong approach. So I think it should belong to you. And also, but on the other hand, I think that's something that the, the Uport guys are really, really, really like spreading the word is that we should also avoid making it on chain as much as possible. We should try to make a lot of those reputations. We should be very careful of them, especially if you're talking about something that is on chain forever. Because like right now, what can be a good reputation can be like in 10 years can be turned against you somehow. And I think there, there are great, great examples on things like, oh, you, are, you were a refugee once, 
you escaped your country and now you go back to your country and things turn bad again, then suddenly you you are in this there is this universally accessible list of all like of of vulnerable populations, right? Because you belong mm. to this religion yeah. and you live in that place and then suddenly because you were a refugee once and you had and you had your reputation online, suddenly that becomes a tool of oppression. I think we need to we need to be careful of that. Do you think so we need to legislate against that? I don't think the problem is the legislation. I think the problem is that be very, very careful of whatever information you put on chain and avoid putting personal information on chain at all costs. And I think that comes back to privacy, right? That comes back to having, like, if, if you can have an attestation, is it, it's probably better to have an off-chain attestation that just says, look, I have, I've been carrying this, this, this signature that I can share with other people than just to have a, a central attestation thing on the blockchain right so just give people so give, give people proof and not necessarily put them on the blockchain so that's that's one one important message to people who are thinking about rep- on-chain reputations so don't let yeah i would say don't legislate against what you can do but legislate against informing users of what they are doing um and that's kind of like something that i think will probably happen in the future now because how would I know as, you know, um, article physicist who can't even start my email, um, whether or not the information I'm, I'm submitting is going on chain or whether or not it's going in, you know, uh, let's just say even a layer two chain or whether or not it's, uh, it's, it's just going to not be committed in that way. Like, how do I know this? Like, how would I be able to determine that? Um, and I don't feel well, like I, app developers will do that responsibly, especially since there's value in not doing it responsibly. Well, um, I think we need to, I, I think our goal here as like, we, we are technical writers. We are, we, you have a technical podcast. Our goal here is to educate developers and try to teach them how to do it responsibly. Otherwise we'll end up with legislation, right? I think it would be better for everyone if, if app developers are simply responsible and don't do things like that so that we don't need to end up having some sort of legislation forced upon us by, by people who don't really understand all the subtleties of the system and ends up killing good ideas among with the bad ones. Yeah, I hate to be the single cynical one in the room, but I have malware bytes on my computer because there's a lot of asshole developers out there. And I think there's always going to be asshole developers who find a way to get something on chain, which is dirty, and will try to either blackmail, extort, or, you know, I, I don't even know how they would blackmail it. But, like, you know, it's just, like, responsibility on the hands of developers. Developers not only, even good developers make mistakes, you know? I feel like we, we're, we're, that's something that ultimately will lead to legislation, whether or not we want it to. And I agree with you that a little legislation is better, but, you know, uh, we need liability in the system in order to, you know, um, take action. I against... sort of agree with you, but I, I would say that the reason that we are in this situation is exactly because we have a bunch of information in central databases that were, connect, were collected by people and that every time the user logins into something, they don't care about their own, their, their where, where the data is leaked in. And we are sort of, like there is this this wave of legislation trying to come in with with developers. I'm not saying that all legislation is bad. I'm not like a radical libertarian. But my my point is that there is there are people who are trying to just say let's just stop it on, on that front. But I think you can do it on the other front and say look 
the main problem here is that users are like browsers are insecure. Is, is, is that we are building a system where data is not stored on user, under the user's control, but it's stored on machines, whoever, and we don't know who controls it. So one of the things we can try to do is give tools to users so that they can, can control their privacy and can be sure who, who is even accessing what information they are creating. And I think that's, that's what I'm, I'm going, going with. Yeah, yeah I, I see us needing nutrition labels to tell us what we're feeding the blockchain. You know, that's a, I don't say we're going to tell them what, what they can and can't do, but well, you know, need, the end best, users need to know. The best place to have the nutritional label will probably be on your browser, not on the, on the app layer, right? It will probably be something that you are, you're running a browser and the browser tells you, look, here data is being leaked. Here is how which information you are sharing, and here's here are the things we can do to avoid this, right? And I think well, that's, that's that's where we can. That's we can exactly that. what I'm currently working on at Status is is providing that information in a local context, so people have much more understanding and guarantees around the information they spread. And 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 when you build on infrastructure like this, you'll have emergent social behavior that that is better for the whole as opposed to the individual who gains the data. If, if everyone holds their own data, they will eventually become used to understanding what data they expose when they interact with things. When you build things on a centralized infrastructure, that social behavior is not emergent because it's, it's, it's not up to the, it's, it's an offloading of responsibility to someone else to handle that type of information. And that's why people act the way they do on the internet. And I'm just going to say, I don't think the browser is the right place for it because I don't think browser makers should be playing whack-a-mole with how DAP developers are trying to get around certain notifications. And I feel like ultimately the liability for any DAP you release is on the DAP developer, not the browser maker. Not, not, and the end user needs to be informed. And I believe that the end, the responsibility to inform your DAP users of, who's, of what's going on in your DAP is ultimately up to the DAP developer, not the person who... Uh, writes a browser, they should not yeah, be doing that job. I don't trust that developers. That's why I I want my browser to be a shield because I. Oh don't, well, yeah, you can have them. it on both fronts, but that's where the inconsistency of reporting comes in. So if they, if you find that information is being submitted to the chain, and they didn't say, hey, your information is being submitted to the chain. There's liability on that's, the DAP developer. That's the beauty. But, but that's the, the beauty. The, the value isn't held by the by the DAP developer ever. That's the whole point is that if someone, if they want to do something like that, if you hold the information and you hold the permissions, that information, you'll always know what the DAP is trying to do. That's, that's the whole point. And so if as a DAP developer, your job is not to figure out all the potential ways in which you can screw somebody. It's just providing a service because you don't have control over all of the value. Your value is in a, is a, is a transitional medium. You transform value of one kind to another kind. And if you don't do that properly, the user will know because they have control over all the data. I think I I I, I just see too many attack vectors there. Well, so I don't know. We'll see how it plays out. A, in reality. Maybe that's a, a diatribes conversation we can have, Colin. But... <laughs> yeah, like I, I really, I really, I don't trust developers um, just to be kind all the time. And I feel like if they can get your information somehow, yeah, they'll submit it on chain in a little valid way. But if they can find a way to do it. You know where they're also submitting into their information database. Yeah, that's 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 where I, I kind of like. Okay, if we trust the chain, 
we also have to trust the DAP. I don't think that that works. The, the DAP is a proxy for the chain. The chain itself is the truth, but we, we can't trust the developers in their code and we need to put liability on them for behaving properly. Well, I think, I think it, it can all be true, right? We, we, we can, we can have, we, we can, we can try to solve the problem multiple fronts. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. There's, there's no like one-stop shop solution for all of this. It's definitely yeah. a, a mixture of all things. Yeah. And it's good to have people with multiple points of view on that and different ways of thinking and different trust models for their own internal internal ethos, because, uh, you know, that's how we build better software. So, yeah, I like this conversation. Alex, how can people reach you? Uh, I'm on, on Twitter, AVSA. Um, I'm, um, you can start start there and I'm probably in other places, too. And the website for Universal Logins? Universallogins.io. Simple enough. Thanks for coming on the show. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, man. It was great. Thanks. Thanks for thanks for the invitation. Bye bye, Corey. Bye bye, Colin. <laughs>